Well, good morning. Um, so, this morning we're going to be continuing um, in Ephesians chapter 5. And the section we're going to be looking at is um, really where the theme title for this series came from, with learning to walk in wisdom with God. Um, you've probably noticed that the idea of walking with God is um, brought up multiple times in Ephesians 5. You remember in verse 1 of chapter 5, we're encouraged to walk in love, just as, just as Christ has loved us, offering himself as uh, a sacrifice to God. Um, and here we're told to be careful how we walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of our time because the days are evil. And we're told not to be foolish then, but to understand what the will of the Lord is. And the therefore at the beginning of verse 15, I think really helps to make it clear that this is a very climactic buildup from the points that have been made beforehand. So remember that so far we've looked at how ultimately we're dealing with wisdom that comes from observing God, looking at God, and trying to imitate his love by understanding first how we are loved by God. So remember we're told to imitate God as beloved children. So in the first lesson we dealt with how important it is to see God as our loving father who's invested in us, that we can see his ways and understand his thoughts and his behaviors and imitate those things, and how that becomes so much better a standard of imitation than just following rules and regulations. And we saw how wisdom considers consequences. So in chapter 5, verses 3 through 7, he gives a series of warnings that those who are actively practicing sin unrepentantly that we can be assured that people who practice things like idolatry and immorality and impurity have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And so we dealt with the fact that wisdom considers consequences. And wisdom is careful to make sure to understand those things ahead of time. And we'll deal more with that this morning. And then we looked at uh, the last month in, in March, how we're called to be light in the Lord. And so that's both personal exposure, letting our own hearts find exposure in God's light, being humbled by God's exposure, being encouraged by that, but also striving to expose things around us by the light of the Lord as well. And so we're told then, therefore, we are to make sure we're careful how we walk in consideration of these things. So we're going to just deal with this verse by verse and just make a point from each verse. And we're going to start in verse 15 with being careful how we walk. So verse 15 again says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. So with this series of lessons, one of the things that I've um, tried to meditate on is how to connect some of the things in Ephesians with wisdom to the Proverbs. Um, Proverbs is a book of wisdom, uh, really explaining how to practically apply our knowledge of God in all sorts of different ways. And so there's a couple Proverbs that I think help us really understand this through illustration and give us maybe a little more depth of clarity. I want to read these two Proverbs, and then we'll talk a little bit more about how God's light fundamentally equips us to be more cautious 
with life and with lustful desire. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 16. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 16. So Proverbs chapter 14, verse 16 says, A wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. Um, your translation may, see it, may say a fool is reckless and careless. Um, after, we read, re, re, after we read chapter 22, verse 3, um, I want to go back and talk a little bit about that. But chapter 22, verse 3, Um, We'll read this and then think a little bit more through how arrogance and foolishness leads us to be careless and reckless and to not apply the kind of caution that God calls for. So Proverbs 14, verse 6, said that a wise man is cautious. He turns away from evil. Fools are reckless and careless. Proverbs 22, verse 3, very similarly, says the prudent sees evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. So prudence is kind of an interesting word, the idea of being prudent. But really it's the idea of looking ahead and making a decision about something because of where it will lead in the future. So the prudent see evil ahead and apply caution now to make sure that that's not something that's run into, right? But the naive, those who are only looking in the moment, who are only acting on moment, they go on and they're punished for it. So thinking about this with Proverbs 14, verse 16, and how the foolish are arrogant, they're reckless and careless, I think all of us, as we age, we experience more and more illustrations of that reality, just even with natural life. Um, Unfortunately, I've been very careless in my youth, and so I have a lot of illustrations to draw from of, uh, of that principle. Um, kind of fortunately for for the sake of illustration. But like one that might um, stick out among all of the different illustrations from uh, my experience. When I was 16, um, I got into the worst accident and was injured more than I'd ever been in my life. And um, that's saying a lot for me. Um, I've been in a lot of automobile accidents. I've driven motorcycles and been in a lot of motorcycle accidents. I've been in multiple car accidents. Um, But this was an accident that involved an ATV. It was a 650cc, very heavy off-road vehicle. So when I was 16, my dad and I, we were in Minnesota in a very large forest area, very, very large. And it was a night when the moon was full and just incredibly bright. And so we decided we'd go for a nighttime ride through the forest. And my dad, he grew up going to that forest, and so he knew it like the back of his hand. Eventually, after driving for maybe 10 minutes, we reached an incline that was steep enough where my dad slowly went over it and, you know, I couldn't see him. But me being 16, I thought if I go as fast as I can possibly go, my ATV might actually go so fast over this incline that I'll go off the ground and get some air. And that's exactly what happened, except on the other side, there were erosions in the road And my dad, going over it slowly and cautiously, had actually stopped on the other end of those erosions and was watching because he was worried that maybe something was going to happen and I was going to wipe out. And so as he's looking back, what does he see? 
he sees his son blast over that hill. My ATV dives headfirst into these erosions. It wipes out. I end up rolling with the ATV for a little bit and came close to dying. And I ended up needing to be helicoptered to a major hospital in Minnesota because of that. And so I was careless and reckless and had developed a very reckless attitude. And just at that point, I just so happened to suffer the consequences of my recklessness. Whereas my dad, being more experienced, recognizing danger, it's night, ATVs just by nature are very dangerous vehicles. People actually die all the time in that forest because on ATVs and off of um, other vehicles they drive in the forest, they get in accidents, they slam their head into a tree, and they die. It happens all the time in that forest. And so my dad, by experience and by understanding those things, he had applied a different wisdom, and he watched me suffer the consequences of recklessness. God's light does the same thing for us, right? God has experience we don't have. God gives us warnings that even if we haven't experienced the consequences of those warnings, we can trust that God sees things with a greater clarity and that God sees people suffer the consequences and he knows the end result of where sin will lead. I remember my brother um, pointing out something that I found very helpful related to sin at one point. He mentioned that sin is very alluring because we only want sin in its most attractive and immediate form. And what he pointed out was lying. So a little white lie can seem like it's going to help me and protect me in the moment, right? But what if everybody lied? What if everybody lied about everything? What if you lived in a world where you couldn't trust anybody and everybody, everything they said was, was covered with dishonesty and selfishness? Would that be a world you'd want to live in? Or how about hatred? You know, I'll have a little malice, a little bitterness in my heart, but what if everybody was hateful to the uttermost extreme? Everybody. What kind of world would that be? And would that be a culture you would want to live in? And so God sees things as they really are. And when God gives us instructions, it should lead us to have a greater sense of caution with how we handle life. Because just like I was naive and careless with something that was actually much more dangerous than I was treating it, we can do the same thing with life and with our relationship with God. Light gives us the clarity to be able to navigate things with a greater sense of understanding and purpose than those who are still in darkness. Fundamentally, just like what it says on the board, fundamentally, being light in the Lord, it equips us to be more understanding and cautious with life and to understand our desires, that acting on our desire apart from God really isn't within our best interest. And so being light in the Lord, it leads us to entrust ourselves to God's will and to strive to be wise about understanding his will. Now, I think Ecclesiastes 11 also gives us a helpful illustration because I think it can be easy to overreact to an instruction like redeem the time. I think it can be easy to think about God as like an overbearing parent, you know? Like, oh, God's telling me to redeem the time. He's trying to take all my fun and all my joy away. 
And if I try to redeem the time, then I'm just going to be doing things I hate all the time, and there's not going to be anything fun about life anymore. And I just want to caution you that if that's how this seems, you're really not seeing God fairly or understanding his will in the right way. And so I bring up Ecclesiastes 11, 9, and 10 to give us a greater clarity that redeeming the time only gives us more liberty and more joy. Well, I'll read the passage and make a couple more comments. Ecclesiastes 11, 9, and 10. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood, and follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Stop there. How do you feel about giving a young man that, that advice? Just before we read anything else. Hey, young man. Follow the desires of your heart, the impulses of your eyes. <laughs> That's setting someone up for disaster, right? But look at the end of this. Yet, know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. You know what Ecclesiastes is really all about? If I could summarize it, just in a few words, the whole book of Ecclesiastes. It's a long exposition and a series of illustrations and meditations on being careful how you walk. It's about walking in wisdom and redeeming the time, knowing the days are evil. It's about understanding what the will of the Lord is and not being foolish with life. And if you notice, this is near the very end of Ecclesiastes. This is one of his final points. Saying, okay, so life ultimately without God is filled with vanity and anger and sadness. So young man, here's what I leave with you. Rejoice. And God gives you total freedom. It's not that your desires are inherently evil or that you can't follow the impulses of your heart. Just let it be in the light of the Lord. That God's, trying not, God's not holding you back from joy. We need to understand that it's sin that hinders our joy. It's sin that brings us into bondage. It's walking in darkness that is the hindrance to our joy. God is trying to give us freedom. He is trying to give us clarity. He is trying to guide us into wisdom with joy. And so in verse 9... He's talking about walking in the light of the Lord from youth. Think about it with the illustration of that accident when I was 16. Did my recklessness increase that joy that I was having on that trip? No, the recklessness of how I was driving the vehicle and how foolish I was with it, that dramatically changed the trip into something that was joyous into an incredible tragedy that my dad has tried to forget about because of how traumatizing it was for him. And so our recklessness in abandoning the caution that God gives, it doesn't give us more joy. It is what is at the root of robbing us of the substance of joy. And so I think it's important to understand that God's not talking to us like a master to his slave. God is talking to us as a father to his son or to his daughter. God's commands are to protect our hearts and liberate us from burdens not to weigh them down. In John 15, verses 10 and 11, Jesus said, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you 
and that your joy may be made full. So then it really comes down to trust. Do you and do I trust that because of who God is, that he has a better understanding of what joy is than I do? And that as the creator of humanity and the creator of the heart and the creator of life, that he understands how to lead me into joy better than I do myself. It really comes down to a matter of trust. Going back to Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 9 and 10, look specifically at verse 10. Can you imagine living through youth and applying the discipline of understanding how to put grief and anger away from your heart and pain from your body? When I was young, especially my teenage years, I went through that cliche like emo phase, you know, where like you're angry all the time even though there's nothing actually really wrong. You're sad all the time and agitated all the time even though it's completely a first world problem and you're actually like doing really, really well for yourself and your parents love you and are treating you great. And so because I didn't put away grief and anger from my heart like God would help me to, I'm still now recovering from the scars of my past with all of the consequences that came from not learning the joy of the Lord and following my own desires and suffering as a result. Again, God as our Father and us as his beloved children, why does he give us these instructions? It's to protect our hearts. It's to liberate us from unnecessary grief and to allow us to make the most of our time on earth while we're here. So that leads us into verse 16 and making the most of our time. Um, If you'll turn back to Ephesians chapter 5. In verse 16, back in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16. So in, in my Bible, this is all really one sentence. So this is connected to the idea of learning to walk in wisdom. He says, so making the most of your time because the days are evil. Some translations will word this as redeeming the time. And that's actually probably the more literal translation of the the words. It literally means making an exchange for, uh, for profit. So it's the idea of learning to get more value out of time because it's being spent like a limited currency. You know, imagine if you only had like $1,000 and someone said, this is it. This is the last, this is the last money you're ever going to get in your life or whatever amount of money. And they say, you literally will never get any more than this. How careful would you be to make sure that you're spending it with wisdom and that you're being thoughtful about what you're doing with that limited resource? We need to see time in that same way that when we spend our time, we're not getting it back ever again. It's gone. And that because of being light in the Lord, God helps us understand that there is a very important value to our time. And there are things that we can invest in with our time and with our energy that are a complete waste of time, that make it harder to live life with wisdom, that become hindrances to our joy. And so God encourages, encourages us to understand that time is a very valuable, very rare resource. And once it's gone, it's gone. And wisdom recognizes that fact. And then he says, he qualifies this because the days are evil. So we'll, we'll think about some practical things with this in a moment. But I think this is very important when he says, you're redeeming the time, you're making the most of it because the days are evil. 
I think the point of that is that there's a reality to the world that we also need to recognize. That the world isn't going to help us make godly priorities or decisions. And that actually, what the world is going to do is make it as hard as possible for us to show any concern for godliness. The world is going to choke out our time and our energy. The world is going to make it seem like, as we talked about it a minute ago, if you do what God says, well, that's just going to take away your joy. You know, God's it's not good news. You know, God's trying to enslave you with burdens, and he's going to add even more burdens onto an already burdened life, and surely you don't want to do that. And so the world will do everything it can. Satan will do everything he can to choke out godly priorities out of our lives. The world will make it as difficult as possible. And so we have to be the ones to see how valuable this is, and we need to make that decision despite how difficult it is. And this is why the next lesson, the next month, will be so important, where God tells us how do we cope with the added understanding, the greater understanding of the difficulty of life. When he says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Not looking for artificial, external things to help us cope with life, but instead drawing even closer to God. But we have to make the choice because of seeing the value of God's kingdom, because of our love for God. It's never going to be convenient. You know, the reason why so many people just go on with life and never obey the gospel is they're oftentimes looking for a more, in, more convenient time. That the gospel just won't fit into their schedule. And so it just it never happens. And so we have to make the priority. The world is not going to make it easy to make those choices. And so I do want to think about this very practically. And this is challenging, right? Wisdom by nature requires self-discovery. This is a very general instruction with, I think, a lot of liberty for different personal applications. And I mean redeeming the time, making the most of time. What that looks like for you may be entirely different than what it looks like for me. Maybe because of your circumstances, maybe because you have more maturity in your faith and so your understanding of what to do with this instruction is just much better than what I think. And then there's the issue too is as I've thought about this instruction, this has been very humbling because I am certainly not the master of this instruction by any means. Um, It's very difficult for me to understand how to apply this to then actually do the work of applying it in faith and you know, so I just, I really want to be open about that, that this is something that I'm still learning and also struggling to make applications for. So there's just multiple reasons why I think we with wisdom need to make personally discovered applications from these general commands. So it requires humility. And just like the parables we talked about last week when Jesus said, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is calling out for the people who are dedicated to learning and discovering more. And it's the same with instructions like this. We have to be humble enough to realize this is a good command that I need to apply. That there's a usefulness to this. There's a need for this. That God has instructed this. And so it needs to be taken personally, but it also involves the honesty of asking ourselves uncomfortable questions and doing that persistently. And here's what I mean. What I've discovered for myself 
is I have to ask me, I, I have to ask myself the same heart-searching questions again and again and again. Is this really the best use of my time? Is this really something that I need to be investing myself in? Is this really helping me grow closer to God? Is this really what it means to walk with wisdom right now? And a lot of times, I don't even want to ask myself those questions because I just want to be left alone to enjoy myself and have my leisure time, right? And so we've got to be willing, despite the difficulty and despite the conviction involved, of still asking ourselves those heart-searching questions, knowing that it is for the Lord that we do these things, that our time is really not our own, that it's something we're striving to yield to the Lord. I think another important heart-searching question with our time, is anything more important being neglected because of how I'm spending my time? Is there something that I know either as just a base responsibility or something that I know God has called me to, that I'm aware of, that I know I should be pursuing? Am I spending my time in one way that is completely neglecting something more important? And that's just a mature thing to consider. I mean, even outside of the Lord, people with their worldly obligations understand the importance of not procrastinating, not neglecting something important, but getting the things done that need to get done in the time they should get done. And all the more then, with understanding that God wants us to redeem our time, we need to be careful that we're not just wasting our time constantly on useless things. Something that Eva and I have talked about, it doesn't mean that we can't enjoy time and that you can't enjoy time watching a movie or just doing something relaxing even. But that's not at the neglect of asking these questions and being fully willing to let those things go and grow out of those things if it would be better. And so we're striving to constantly think not just what's adequate, what's acceptable, but truly what are the best choices we can be making with our time? What are the most valuable things we can be learning to invest in? And so it is a process. It is a patient process of growth. And with humility, it's a process that requires steps. And so there's a contentment with knowing that this isn't necessarily going to be some dramatic change. Maybe it will be. But it may be just in the morning, for instance, you think, you know what? I can make more use of my time if I spend five minutes dedicating time to meditating on God's word for five minutes when I wake up every morning and just doing something simple is starting there. And it may mean that because we're so often not in full control of our time, because we may be at work, maybe in marriage and with kids, you just are not able to do what maybe you would most prefer to do on your own, is just trying to think, how can I right now make the most of the situation that I'm in and prayerfully consider how to serve the needs of the circumstance, even if it's not according to my own preferences. Again, these are just questions we need to ask ourselves to discover with wisdom how we can be making the right applications. And I think another general thing to consider is we need to be striving to be more focused and invested in everything, especially in interactions. And what I mean by that is it can be easy to be doing one thing, but then thinking about another and then another and then another. And so you're not really focused or invested in what's happening at all. 
Because ultimately your mind is in ten different places. I think there's something important in the fact that when you read about Jesus' life, nobody ever had to deal with greater stress, greater anxieties and distractions than Jesus was dealing with with the looming nature of the cross. And he would bring up to his disciples as they would be going through his ministry. Far before his death, he would stop them and tell them, I'm going to Jerusalem eventually to die and suffer. And so it was on his mind outside of the moment. But what's amazing about Jesus is despite the anxiety and the looming nature of the cross, when you read about his interactions, he was always fully present. He was always present enough to serve the need of the situation, to speak a word that was the most edifying and the most helpful thing in the situation. He was still able to make time for people. He was able to be in people's homes. He was able to show kindness and set aside his own anxieties of the cross to focus on what was at hand and be present. And so there's a discipline to striving prayerfully to be more focused on the needs of the moment and the things at hand and striving to put greater concentration especially in personal interactions. I think something that helps with this is obviously when we pray, it doesn't always have to be out loud and may even the grand majority of times, we may not even have the opportunity to be praying out loud. And so it's a matter of bringing prayer into our interactions in our hearts. It's a matter of at work, seeking strength from God, striving to acknowledge God and give glory to God asking God for help and wisdom to handle things in a way that's pleasing to him, thinking about God before speaking, before interacting. And if you look at Ephesians 5, if your Bible is still open there, I want you to see where this transitions very quickly. In verse 22, he makes applications of wives and how they interact with their husbands. In verse 25, he deals with husbands interacting with their wives. In chapter 6, verse 1, he deals with children interacting with their parents. Verse 4, fathers to their children. Verse 5, slaves to their masters. Verse 9, masters to their slaves. And so, so much of this is putting more investment into our relationships and understanding how to serve God more deeply and more completely in these common interactions we're having on a daily basis. Just like the parables, The glory is in the mundane. The glory is in those little, hidden, and quiet decisions that are happening on a daily basis. And verse 20, this will be the last thing for making the most of our time. Um, This has been a very helpful thing for me in verse 20. Um, We'll obviously get here uh, soon, Lord willing. But he says, Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, even the Father. A way that we can redeem the time is giving thanks for everything. And listen, if you're involving yourself in something that you know you cannot thank God for, you probably need to stop doing that thing that you can't give any thanks to God for. And so just like in Ecclesiastes 11 where he says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, I don't think he's talking about just a worldly joy especially when he brings up acknowledging the judgment of God. 
The point he's making is let your joy be rooted in the freedom God is giving you. Everything you're doing, acknowledge God in all of your ways. Just as in the Proverbs, he says, he will then establish your steps. And so we're striving to give thanks to God for everything he's allowing us to do, even things of leisure, even sleep, everything, no matter how minute, if it's something we can bring to God, we're redeeming the time by giving him thanks for the allowances and provisions and graciousness he's allowing us to have. So lastly, in verse 17, we're not to be foolish, we're to understand what the will of the Lord is. Uh, Turn back to Proverbs chapter 1. So again, just like parables, wisdom is very similar in a very general way where a person can't be forced to value wisdom, a person can't be forced to grow in wisdom or apply wisdom or seek wisdom. It really is something they have to discover and they can only discover it by warnings and promises. And that's exactly what the Proverbs present with presenting wisdom. Read with me Proverbs chapter 1, verse 20 through 33. And just consider here the invitation that wisdom is presenting and how it fits with this idea that we need to understand what the will of the Lord is. But it's not something that can be forced upon us. Proverbs 1, verse 20. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I called and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention, and you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at the ease from the dread of evil. Something I appreciate in verse 20 at the beginning of this, how is wisdom being embodied? Is it with an armored man with a sword at your throat saying, get wisdom or I'm going to kill you? No, it's a woman lifting her voice in the middle of a noisy city. Amidst all the busyness, amidst all the the humbug of the things that are going on, she's just crying out in the gates, giving promises, extending warnings, and assuring those who hear her that if you do not turn at the correction being provided by wisdom, you will eat the fruit of your own way, and you will be filled with, with the consequences of your decisions. So God will not force wisdom upon us. The people who get to heaven are the people who are striving to get there intentionally. It's people who accept the correction of God and they value wisdom 
because of his word, his promises. And so turn to Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 23, and this is where we'll end the lesson. Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 23. Nothing, and I obviously highlighted this, nothing matters more in life than understanding the Lord's will. This is why the, the writer Paul in Ephesians says, don't be foolish. Nothing matters more. There's nothing more valuable than gaining the wisdom of knowing what God's will is and putting it into practice. And that's why in Proverbs, wisdom is pictured as this woman proclaiming, this is the only thing that matters. And if you don't choose this, it's like you've lost everything. Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 23. As Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount with a series of warnings, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name did cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It sounds like the person in judgment here was very busy with what seems like really good and godly things. I mean, casting out demons, you imagine the service that's providing for a person, casting a demon out of their body and out of their life, giving them their will again. Miracles may involve things like people healing the sick. And again, you imagine the great service that rendered to somebody to heal them of some serious ailment. But Jesus tells them, I never knew you. One thing that John helped me with, we, we had read through Matthew up to chapter 7 for our Matthew study. And he had mentioned in verse 21, to repeat Lord twice is a term of special endearment, to say, Lord, Lord. And so it's not as if this was somebody who is totally unfamiliar with Jesus, as if Jesus is some stranger he all of a sudden met at the judgment day. This is someone he knew with endearment, and yet he was not known even fundamentally in verse 23. We need to see things from the view of judgment, just like Ecclesiastes 11. Remember that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Satan will take advantage of our neglect. Here was somebody who was very busy with what seemed to be good godly things, and yet there was severe neglect in what they understood about Jesus. So I just ask you the question, is there neglect in your life where you see that there really isn't the kind of seriousness towards God's will that would really honor the value of wisdom with doing his will? Satan takes advantage of our willful neglect. False teaching is advantaged by our neglect. Just earlier than this, Jesus was talking about how there are wolves in sheep's clothing. And so if we're not really striving to understand God's will, so easy to be allured away by things that pull on our emotions. Or that just, it sounds good, that's using godly language. Just from my experience, just in studying with people, usually false teaching is covered in godly and biblical language that is being severely misapplied. But it allures through ignorance and neglect of really being firm with things the Bible very clearly says if we're just willing to do the work of caring enough to read it and consider it thoughtfully. 
So false teaching is advantaged by our neglect and it's a part of the foolishness of not understanding the importance of God's will. And so this is what I leave with you. It's not that God hasn't been absolutely 150% crystal clear. When you put your mind into God's words, what you find is encouragement and promises and warnings and examples and parables and illustrations It's when we're not invested. It's when we're not even trying to learn and understand God's will. Just like Ecclesiastes 11, it's not some grand thing that is beyond our ability to do. It's just a matter of striving to see the value of our time and just making those little steps to make more of our time to seek the Lord and to seek him seriously. To understand his will is more important than anything else people busy their lives with to the point where they have no time at all to think at all about God. When really it's not a matter of time, it's a matter of values. If you do not have time to prioritize God's kingdom, it's not a matter of your time. It's a matter of your values. If we value the Lord's will, we will make time. The world won't make it easy, but God has made it clear. So I commend that to you um, this morning. Um, I hope this has been edifying. Um, It's a very challenging series of instructions to consider. It's very humbling, but because of the mercy of God, we are equipped to approach things with humble boldness and just bend our knee before God and just seek his grace and help to grow and to mature and to seek the better thing. God will help us in that. If there's anything we can do for you, whether it be... um, confessing sin and seeking the help of the saints or seeking encouragement, um, anything related to the kingdom of God, we've set aside this time to bring those things forward as we stand and sing the invitation song.